Hi, I'm Cindy, and this is the story of sex. In each episode of the story of sex, we explore the human experience of getting down and dirty, unpacking the hot topics you're afraid to discuss, including some kinky shit you're afraid to get tied up in. On today's show, we are continuing our discussion on the delicate topic of race and sex, including fetishization, sex play, consent, and kink alternative communities. We will have a lovely guest star, Milena Williams, award-winning author and BDSM sex educator, to give us perspective into one expert's view of the controversial topic of race play. So to start with, um, the reason I am covering this topic is because I wanted to be a doctor. And this lifelong dream is important because that's how I went up here talking to you about sex and about this topic specifically. So I love studying diseases. If you ever met me, you will know that. I also grew up a really devout Christian, well, Jehovah Witness, and um, my religious friends accepted my abstinence, but a lot of my friends venturing into sex did not. They used to make fun of me or tease me for being such a prude. But um, in high school, nobody was having the kind of good sex I saw in the movies. There was no sex on the piano, like in the beautifully erotic Pretty Woman. There was no like hour-long venture usually. It was usually like, we got 30 seconds. You only last 30 seconds. There's like 30 seconds of foreplay. So, you know, uh, I remember being like, that doesn't sound like fun. It sounds like you were just waiting for your parents to come home. And I am not trying to shame, but um, also be aware that what sounds like fun for you may not be fun for someone else, which comes in later in the topic so uh, while I had a few friends in high school who had threesomes or had sex in the theater at school or had sex at a rave while they were high in ecstasy I entered college a very naive person I had barely had my first kiss I barely had my first boyfriend but being the bookish person that I am I knew that as a doctor, you can't cringe when people tell you sexual stuff. So I went on a venture to learn all about sex, to not be a buffoon, and to be able to help people because I wanted to be able to be a good professional. And I took a course on human sexuality. So my human sexuality professor introduced us to SNM with the first video that people watch as SNM newbies, which is all about consent, which might surprise you. But um, the first topic that a lot of kinky people talk about is consent and that makes the sex more fun and enthusiastic and consensual this includes porn stars this includes um sex workers a lot of people have really in-depth conversations about sex that the mainstream communities don't often engage in in my job i do health education which means i try to make these huge medical topics more bite-sized for patients and part of this is health literacy which is really important for medical institutions particularly in terms of informed consent so when I get bored or upset or whatever, I go on PubMed and type in things. And one thing that comes up is that SNM and other kinks um, for people that are inexperienced can cause a lot of injuries. When I was doing the research for this podcast, there were about 100 articles on different types of injuries, even deaths that have occurred because people are inexperienced or um, get a little too carried away without the proper instruction. So now misinformation is my enemy. And I have a real beef with Fifty Shades of Grey. Fifty Shades of Grey is not an accurate portrayal of BDSM. Can I emphasize that enough? It is not a real portrayal of BDSM. The person who wrote it had no experience with BDSM. Um, she wrote it as a blog thing for Twilight. 
and it has a seriously f- fucked up the public perception because it is an abusive relationship and it's a big problem because that was a lot of people's introduction into this multi-layered kink. So I will say that it was a great thing for opening the discussion into kinky sex and normalizing sexual fantasies. I'm sure it improved a lot of people's sex lives because it created a way for them to facilitate a conversation with their partner or partners or with themselves about what they're interested in. Um, Something can be good and bad simultaneously. So here's some BDSM 101. Okay, so what the fuck is even BDSM? Some people think BDSM is just like the Rihanna song says, chains and whips and excitement. Some people think BDSM is super abusive behavior disguised as a kink. Um, Some people think the only broken people and perverts participate in BDSM. In reality, BDSM is an acronym for BD, which is bondage and discipline, DS, dominance and submission, and SM, sadism and masochism. This includes role play, bondage, physical restriction, punishment, power exchange. Many practices include exchange of physical or emotional pain, but it doesn't always have to go to that degree. And if you're like, I'm not like, ah, only freaks like to be hurt during sex. I'm going to make you rethink that statement because if you like being tied up or held down, if you like hickeys or hair pulling or choking or spanking or rough sex or biting, congratulations, you are a pervert. You're on the light end of that BDSM spectrum. Ditto if you don that Halloween doctor costume and teased your partner about it or done it a scenario or teased your partner with a feather duster or a piece, an ice cube. That is also part of BDSM. It's part of role play. And even if you're like, well, I haven't done it either because you haven't found the right person to do it with or it hasn't come up in your current relationship. Over 65% of women have fantasized about being dominated and 47% about dominating someone else. About half of all people also report having responded erotically to being bitten. And this is from the Kinsey study from 1953. So if back then when, you know, everything was like the nuclear family and keeping up with the Joneses and having a cutesy little, you know, life. um, If back then that was the demographic, we can definitely count on the fact that nowadays it's probably brought in to include a lot more. So we're all pervy. So the second um, often common perception of BDSM is that it's abusive and inherently violent. Now maybe you're like, no, 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 no. Fifty Shades of Grey was all abuse, all violence is bad. It's misogynistic. It's terrible for romance. Fill in the blank here. Um, Yes, Fifty Shades of Grey did portray an abusive BDSM relationship, which is a huge problem with it, which I said at the beginning. In reality, BDSM is huge on consent. It's a requirement. People actually talk about sex, the interests, the boundaries, the fantasies, the safe words. There was a study done from Northern Illinois University this year, actually, which revealed that BDSM practitioners are more consent-minded when it comes to sex acts and less likely to conform to behaviors associated with rape culture. Practitioners of BDSM displayed significantly lower levels of benevolent sexism, which is when you accept sexism because it's nice, like when a guy opens a door for you. Like chivalry, basically, is a sign of benevolent sexism. The rape myth acceptance, they were less likely to believe women had asked for it or people had asked for it, um, and they were less likely to victim blame. 
BDSM usually has a specific contract where there's a clear communication to quote, a safe word is respected, you stop. No negotiation, no shaming, no pushing. Because in BDSM you do talk about what's called a soft no versus a hard no. So maybe at this point in time, you know, I'm not comfortable with you sticking your finger in my butt, but maybe later we can talk about it. So some SNM has no sex or violence. Um, dominatrixes can do scenarios where they just humiliate people or um, treat them like furniture, which means they kind of like they'll rest their feet on them or treat them like a table. Um, there's asphyxiation, there's role play, like you could pretend to be an Amish farmer and his milkmaid friend and you know, like that counts within the BDSM spectrum. Dr. Gloria Brame, um, a PhD in homosexuality, says BDSM does not have to follow any pattern and there is no one model for a BDSM relationship can be. So maybe you're like, okay, you said it wasn't violent and you said it was common, but only broken people and perverted people actually do BDSM. You're just playing semantics. They've done studies on that because it's such a common thought. There is no significant differences between BDSM practitioners and the general population on measures of psychopathology, depression, anxiety, OCD, or psychological sadism and masochism. Dr. Thorne says that it's one of the more common and frustrating misconceptions of BDSM, that it emerges from abuse or domestic violence. Um, instead, it's actually just one part of people's sexuality and lifestyle. It's regular people and often it's educated people, people with PhDs and master's degrees who um, just enjoy having that intimate dynamic with another person because there is a lot of trust within BDSM that you have to have. She says that it's about being vulnerable, being able to trust someone enough to know that they're not going to hurt you. In fact, Thorne says that it's easier for people to get into BDSM if they don't have a history of abuse and who people who are more stable within their lives because you have the ability to come to um, live in this fantasy world and not have it drain you in the same way that if, if you were in an abusive place in your life. So if people are not crazy broken perverts, what about race play? Didn't you just spend the whole last episode telling us not to do any kind of race, racially motivated things and to pull our head out of our ass? Yes, I, I did talk about that a lot. But this podcast is intended to promote d dialogue between people and facilitate conversations that are sometimes more difficult to have. Race play, the official race play is um, role-playing part of BDSM where the power imbalance in question is the race of the people involved. So it's solely based on race. Um, this often plays out in a person of color acting as a slave or a maid or a servant to a white master. Its purpose is racial degradation. To people who aren't into this, this can seem problematic and icky and really racist. And it is a very controversial subject often. Um, the idea that someone would get sexual pleasure from either end of this taboo reenactment is confusing, and even the fetish community as a whole hasn't quite decided on how it feels about it. Race is such a dominant part of your identity, though, whether or not you want it to be. How do you leave it at the front door? Some people can't leave it at the front door. Um, I am one of those people. I don't think that I would be able to engage in race play without it affecting me in a negative manner. We asked Christina this question, our guest from the last episode, and um, she had this to say about it as a black woman in the United States. Um, I am initially blunt thoughts. I would not feel safe 
in that kind of interaction. I feel as though the power dynamic is off. I don't know. I think the kind of racism is like a big sexual no-no for me, at least. Like, oh my goodness. Part of this bigger discussion is that um, that this podcast is trying to navigate is the history of sex and human behavior about sex, and that includes things that are controversial. Um, people of all races post online in fetish groups. Um, our producer went online and created an account within one of the sites to allow us a glimpse into part of their world. So here are some comments from the Race Play Forum on FetLife, a fetish website. Just a heads up, they are racist, but we wanted to show a sample of what people are talking about in regards to race play. Any white supremacists here without limits? I have no limits while being degraded. Hit me up if you're interested. Wow, shaking my damn head. Why are there no racist women here? Where are all the white goddesses? This dirty boy needs to be punished. Looking for my Asian flower who enjoys submitting her body to a white man. I'm trying to find somebody local, ideally, that would love to verbally humiliate me and degrade me with racial slurs. The more racist and hardcore, the better. You must be white. So race, sex, and power are very complicated topics. And when combined, they touch on some very uncomfortable realities about history for both people of color and for white people. It's a very controversial topic, but it's also very attractive to some people who are involved within it. Um, our guest star, Molina Williams, um, is a black woman, a BDSM educator, storyteller, and award-winning executive pervert, as her website says. And she's one of the top experts in the United States on race play. She participates in it with her partner, who's a Columbia music professor. They have an article in the New York Times if you'd like to read it. She also has a book called Playing Well with Others, Your Field Guide to Discovering, Exploring, and Navigating the Kink, Leather, and BDSM Communities, co-written with Lee Harrington. Um, it's available at your local bookstore or on Amazon. So hello, Melena. Thank you for being on our show. Thank you. So the first question we have for you is, how do you d define race play? Race play, as simply as I can put it, is any type of kink or SM or BDSM interaction that explicitly involves the um, actual or assumed race of the participants as a factor in the actual scene itself. So for example, two people of any racial background can get together and do a spanking scene, but if you incorporate the um, the fact that perhaps it's a black man spanking an Asian woman and what the dynamics of that might be and what the politics of that might be, that shifts the dynamic of the scene. And so race play basically is saying we're going to incorporate this reality or this fantasy, because it also certainly can be a part of a fantasy scene, into our actual play. Well, thank you. Um so the next question I have is, do you think that POC and white partners can discuss or have SNM without discussing race or having some race play come in? Uh, I'm going to say I think that you could do that as effectively as you could eliminate gender, politics, socioeconomic background and um, 
you know, actually utilizing oxygen to stay alive as factors in the play. I, I cannot see a way to honestly engage in kink or SM, which is about power, uh, without addressing the power that's inherent in all of our dynamics and all of our interactions, regardless of whether or not we like it and whether or not we are fetishizing it and whether or not we were sexualizing it, because it will come up, I promise you. Um, things come up even for partners who were not of different races. You have interracial issues. You have um, issues of politics. You have issues of gender. You have issues of socioeconomic imbalances. And so all of those things definitely come into play when you are engaging in SM, which is, you know, one of the one of the more obvious psychosexual dramatic interactions that folks can have and it's very deliberate so to say we're just going to ignore that we see no color i think is a naive and b also disregards a very critical aspect of sexuality in the sm community which is open acknowledgement of very difficult subjects and we have a really unique opportunity to explore that with awareness and um and consent and 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 uh, sort of like a, a childlike innocence in a way. And so to disregard that or pretend that that's not real, I think is 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 absurd, frankly. I think you made a lot of good points there with that response about race play. One reason I was interested in race play being featured in this episode was that I think that when people do SNM or talk about SNM or even when you're just dating, there's a way that race comes into relationships whether you want it to or not. Uh, I was also interested in what perspective you could bring um, to, the, to these questions being a member of this community and being a sex educator. Um, another question I had was that in one of your interviews, you talked about kind of like your origin story for getting interested in race play and how you got more involved within the community. Um, I think that's a question that uh, comes up a lot too when I presented this topic to people was how could a person be interested in this or do that as a person of color? Um, how do you deal with that question or what do you think about it? What, what do you think when people ask you that question? I, I, my first statement that I always tell people is I'm not selling anybody on this type of play. Um, if you hear about race play or you learn about it or you read about it and your first reaction is an entire and complete curling up of your soul in horror then that's not for you. And I'm never out here saying, here's why you should do it. I've never once uh, advised people to go against their gut on this. However, the reality is there's an overwhelming number of people who might have that recoil reaction, but at the same time have this little frisson of like, oh, but mm, something, something is there for me. And part of it is that it is forbidden. There's the lure of something that is verboten. And here's the thing, um, when people are deciding to explore BDSM and kink, this whole new world opens up to them. And one of the things that we, when I first came into the scene, the mantra was safe, sane, and consensual, SSC. Now we have a risk-aware consensual kink, R-A-C-K. The idea being that if you are, you know, um, engaging in something consensually with uh, all of your faculties about you and, and you have the enthusiastic consent of all partners that, that you can do almost anything. But then all of these parameters and these walls start shutting down. And when I realized that people were telling me that my fantasy, uh, which did not involve harming anyone, which involved purely me wanting to explore something, was so terrible that people were willing to 
ostracize me, to threaten me with violence, um, to picket and boycott my, my classes, just even discussing the topic. And I realized that there was so much uh, discomfort and so much hatred, which I feel are based in fear. Now, I'm not going to psychoanalyze someone who uh, objects to what I do and tell them why they're afraid of it or why they're angered by it. But I ask people to at least look at their anger and see if it really has to do with what I'm doing or if it has to do with their own issues. So when people ask, how could I do it? I say, well, how could you do any aspect of SM? Everything is a little bit fucked up. That's part of the draw of it. And if I say to myself, well, I have this desire, but I'm not going to do it because it's uh, it's too far or it's disrespectful, then I am essentially treating myself through a lens of racism, which says, because of my race, I am not permitted to engage in a certain type of play, which is frustrating and unfair and is yet another way for me to have my sexuality as a Black woman controlled by someone else, even if it is another Black person. Uh, it does, and it did hurt a lot more at first when I first started having these discussions and other people of color were very harsh. And then I realized through the years that some of my most vocal critics were people who were behind closed doors doing exactly what I was doing, but they weren't talking about it publicly. And um, in the same way that you have these closeted Republicans being discovered um, with uh, sex workers of all stripes, it's a similar thing. It's people lashing out at the thing that they desire and abhor at the same time. And what I try to tell people is play on that edge. If that's what you desire to do, play on that edge. Um, so the how for me is an intense curiosity as to what that process will reveal about me and about my journey. And that's, that's the big why and how. That was a great framing of a lot of the different layers that come into this um, because SNM is always being targeted as kind of this perverted thing. One question I had coming into this topic um, was that within SNM, like you said, there's power plays. Um, so one experience I had was I had a partner that asked me if I would do maid role play and I'm Latina. So I was, I was like, I was like, um, I'm, you know, like, I was like, what do you mean by that? And he's like, no, it's perfect because you're Latina. And he was this white guy and I was, and I was like, Excuse me? <laughs> and so even just a common fantasy that's, you know, like the, the maid kind of fantasy um, had this huge thing for me where I'm like, if I go along with it, am I like feeding your weird, you know, I don't even like fetishization. Am I, I guess yeah. like, yeah. So I guess that's one thing where it became, it was just a, it's a common fantasy, right? You see in the movies or Archer or whatever. Yeah that had these racial undertones for me. Well, and this is, this is the thing. Like, this is why I tell people, if you, you want to pretend that this, that this is not an aspect of it, um, you're going to have your, 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 your illusion blown out of the water just exactly in the situation you describe as perfect because it wasn't just that he said, I want to do this made fantasy. He layered on your actual racial and cultural heritage into it. Um, non-consensually, because it's not like he checked in with you and said, hey, let me talk about this fantasy I have. Let me see if this layer is cool for you, because you certainly could do uh, a, a maid and, and you know, like someone, the housekeeper thing, without purposefully adding that layer. Is it going to exist? Certainly, but you don't necessarily have to put it up. But Homeboy already went there and was like, yeah, this is perfect. And I'm like, <laughs> 
Um, mostly because that's one of the things that I personally find a red flag if I'm engaging in a scene with a person who does culturally and socioeconomically have power over me when they assume that they are going to have that power in this scene and that this is something that they find desirable. I really need to know why because uh, I might not trust them as readily if they come to it with like slavering jowls and, you know, jumping on that as part of their fetishization. Uh, the most success I've had is with people who've been a little hesitant and who really said, okay, I hear what you're talking about. I'm down, but I really need to sit and we really need to connect on what this is about. And that to me is a safer and more egalitarian approach. It's never going to be totally egalitarian, let's be real. But I think that that's a step closer when both people are going in saying, this is a, a, a minefield. Let us acknowledge that and see if we can walk through it safely. So do you feel that there is like a, I think you talked a little bit about the boundaries that you have. Um, do you think there's a line then that can be crossed? Um, or is it as long as it's consensual, then there isn't really a parameter that's not worth exploring yeah it's there are always going to be lines to be crossed what's very interesting is that my personal experience and what i have observed is that often you don't know those lines are crossed until you're looking back over your shoulder and it's far away <laughs> in the distance um because the thing is that most role plays that we do in the community do not have to do with what you are actually living day to day, right? If someone does a daddy girl role play, no one legally is doing that scene. Do you know what I mean? No one is, the, I mean, the average person in the average club is certainly going to be at least 18. And so you have no actual chronological children playing with their actual dad or mom or aunt or uncle. These are all entirely fantasy. So even though you might connect to an aspect of yourself in that childlike space, you are not 12, you are not six, you are not, you know, you are not actually that age when you're doing this, daddy, I've been a bad girl sort of fantasy, right? But if you are playing the Latina maid, if you are playing the white cop, if you are, if you are inhabiting any of those realities, there's a factor that really lives in your day-to-day -day default world life. And so that becomes a lot edgier and, um, What's very interesting is that the capacity for people to go really deep in those scenes, I feel, is a lot more immediate. And that can be where you start crossing those lines, because you might be someone who's accustomed to having really good scenes and then being done and then maybe having a little fluffy light headspace. And then you're back and you get the aftercare, you have your snacks and everything's good. But I've had several times when I've done these sorts of scenes where I had a disassociative episode or I uh, tapped into some very deep and very ancient rage. And the person I had just played with, even though they were a dear friend of mine, became a foul enemy and I wouldn't let him touch me and I did not want to talk to him and I did not want any aftercare from him. And so he was actually left in a really dark place as well having just victimized me uh, horribly for the past couple of hours and then not been able to reconnect, which is something that I think a lot of people don't get uh, top sadist dominance. They need to be reintegrated into uh, a consensual kind human when they've been playing not that person. And the fact that we were not able to reconnect afterwards was a line that had been crossed and neither of us were expecting that. And so one of the things I let people know is that you 
have a very high chance of pushing into some places that you aren't expecting. So expect the unexpected and make sure that you're doing this in a way where you have uh, uh, safety nets in place, have someone else you can talk to about the scene, um, make sure that you set up check-ins afterwards, even if you're feeling kind of weird, because those things can really pull you deep into these whirlpools. And sometimes it's really, really difficult to get back out. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, that was one of the questions we had was how do you deal with these emotionally charged like stereotypes and situations? Um, would you mind, um, some of our listeners are new to SNM, talking a little bit about a- what aftercare is? It's specifically aftercare is a deceptively simple term because it just refers to what you do after you've had a time delineated scene, right? So if you're doing a spanking, you're doing a rope bondage scene, then afterwards, what do you have to do to get the person uh, back on their feet and, and, and functioning? And then you might ask, why would they not be functioning? And the, and the reality is in a lot of play, uh, boosts up a lot of adrenaline and endorphins and all kinds of hormonal changes occur Aftercare basically is saying, what do we need to do to get back to where we are able to function in the default world? And sometimes that involves very basic things like hydration, nutrition, um, temperature regulation, all of these things, making sure that someone's not too hot, not too cold, et cetera, that they've had plenty to drink. Sometimes it's also a matter of making sure that someone is emotionally and mentally back on track. Because if someone, for example, has been doing a scene where they've been playing a, a, a naughty Catholic schoolgirl and they're in that headspace, it might take them a few minutes before they can get in a car and drive home. Uh, so you want to make sure that they are back and that they're cool. And I do not want it to be forgotten that the person who is the, the top or the dominant or the sadist in the scene also needs aftercare because a lot of folks get into a very um, sadistic headspace and being left in that headspace without being sort of brought back to, yes, you're a cool person, you're not some evil predator, you're not some terrible molester, you're not some racist abuser, whatever, wherever you've gone, you got to get back to the, um, the hopefully not uh, sociopathic evil person that maybe you've been playing for a while and so aftercare works uh, all of those ways in in making sure that everyone is back to where they need to be thank you for that great advice um you were talking about people leaving the space so do you think that they're what is your opinion on like sex workers being asked to engage in this fantasy or what what do you think is a good conversation to have or what's a way to introduce it or I think the first conversation to have is to figure out if it's something that you want to offer. Um, I know that there are some uh, professional doms who specifically uh, go into those realms and they are upfront about it. And they're like, this is what I do. Here's what I am. Here's what I'm up for, uh, et cetera. And then I think that there are definitely people who are going to be confronted with a fantasy that either is outside of their experience or outside of their own desire. And I deeply feel that if someone is doing sex work, that is a bound that is beyond the boundary for them, that this is not an area where you really want to venture. Um, if you're not really into piss play and someone says, you know, I want you to pee on me, you could sort of shrug and go, okay, fine. It's not my thing, but fine, I'll pee on you. 
Um, but I don't think that generally people would consider that to be something with a potentially deep emotional resonance or impact. It might, but it's less likely than if someone says, well, I want to, uh, here's a list of epithets I'd like to hurl at you uh, while we're screwing. Uh, to think that that is something that you can then separate from yourself, if that's part of your, your praxis for your sex work, it might become more difficult. So I, I would personally think if it's something that you would dig, then fine, do it. If it's not, I'm not sure that it would be an effective practice or a safe one, emotionally safe, for people doing that work um, as, a, as, a, as a service work for other folks. I think a lot of people have the misimpression that, well, with anything regarding sex, that because you like started, you have to finish, or because you did this, you have to do that, or because you're engaging in sex work, you're open to everything. And it's a something that we tend to internalize. And um, I think in this particular instance, especially where you're likely to have uh, a, a clientele who have had a fantasy that might not be reflective of what's going to be safe and emotionally consensual and 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 um, sustainable for the other person with whom they're engaging. Uh, laminating a fantasy onto another person usually is not in, in intrinsically harmful, but I think in this instance, there's so much happening uh, that can really have a resonance that would bring beyond the demarcation of that scene that I would be so hesitant if it's not something that you find personally engaging you know that's, that's not a boundary I would push um in what way do you think that white people like what are the ethics or the conversations that white people can do when they're initiating or seeking out race play um yeah my first impulse is that I uh strongly advise uh people who are in the control part, the privilege, privilege havers <laughs> to uh, avoid being the one to bring up this uh, type of play. Um, as, as counterintuitive as it sounds, it's fine for you to have those fantasies, but to bring it into the relationship if you are engaging with a person of color is potentially explosive. And not just because they might not be into it, but because your reasons for asking might be difficult to explain and difficult for the other person to accept. So a lot of times I tell people like if someone approaches you and they want to talk about it, fine. If it's your fantasy and you want to engage in that fantasy with another person of color, you sure as hell better get to know them and explore a great deal with them and gain a substantial amount of trust before bringing it up. I know from my own metric, if someone approaches me and they're like, hey, nice to meet you, let's play. P.S. I've always wanted to do, um, you know, Angela down on the plantation scene. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say thanks, but no thanks, because that's not who I want them to seek in play. I want them to come and want to play with me and engage with me and then see what our dynamic together manifests. Um, so, so, so that's the first thing. I think the other thing is that uh, if for someone who is a, a white person living in a position where they have that privilege and they really, 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 really have a desire and a, and a need for that type of play, to find someone that you know is already there versus trying to sort of uh, 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 bring someone towards that. You know, part of the reality is if you are going to jump into the deep end of the pool, you got to make sure that all parties involved 
are trained to swim that deep and trained to tread water and trained to life save and do all of the shit necessary if and when things get really dicey. I think a lot of people that aren't in the communities, they have like an aversion of talking about sex or about difficult topics sometimes. So what should people do when they do feel like their boundaries are crossed when these things creep into sex play without consent? Um, one of the things that I have found really beneficial is not only um, talk about negotiate with your with your partner or partners what your aftercare is, but have an aftercare buddy who's outside of the scene but is in your corner. Have someone who knows what you're going to do and someone with whom you can check in thereafter. And it can be another, you know, another person who aligns with your orientation. So if you're a top, another top. If you're a bottom, another bottom. Or specifically, sometimes it's it's helpful to have someone who is on the flip side of the whip from you. So if you're a bottom, having a top to talk to after the scene so that you can have that kind of grounded energy. Um, because sometimes just describing what happened to another person, telling that story can enable you to have a, a little bit of distance especially if something came up for you or something went off the rails or or even if something was super terrific. But part of aftercare for me is definitely going through the story of what happened and figuring out for me where the awesome parts were, where the where the less awesome parts were, and connecting with another person who wasn't directly involved can give you a little bit of objectivity. Obviously this has to be someone that you that you trust very much. And that's really very helpful. And if you don't have that person or if you're someone who's very new, just writing it out, just taking a you know half an hour and saying, I'm going to sit down. Um, we used to call them scene reports, basically, where you wrote like a little book report about the scene you had just done. And taking that and putting it out there, putting it into a format where you can turn around, stop, take a breath and read it can also sometimes help you do your own processing. And it is a form of aftercare because one of the purposes of aftercare is to cement the the experience in your body, in your mind, in your heart in a way that's going to be most beneficial to you. And that's not to say that every experience is going to be super awesome because I've had some absolutely shit experiences that were completely necessary and vital to my development. And it took me a while to figure out where to categorize those. You know, um, actually have a class called Never a Bad Scene which you know is not to say no scene ever goes bad, but it's to say, look, if you take a scene that was difficult or off the rails or viewed into non-consent and you put it in terms of victimization or you put it in terms of this was bad and terrible and I wish it never happened, you're shutting yourself off from a lesson. And sometimes it's, sometimes it's a lesson you need to learn. Sometimes it's just bad shit and someone bad got their hands on you. But sometimes it's a situation they needed to, to to learn something and if you shove it away as a bad experience you can't integrate it and integration is a really critical part of what kink and sm is i think on a psychological and spiritual level i i saw in one of your because we're talking about these difficult conversations that we have and also um i saw in one of your articles that you said that you needed to have a partner that was um more intelligent so you couldn't think your way out of it and also that you needed to be in love to do certain um, type of um, race play or can you talk a little bit more about that because I don't think that's something that people equate with race play. I would put uh, many forms of race play under the larger umbrella of um, play that deals with intense emotional weighty experiences you know that's it's it's under the umbrella of psychological play 
you know, um, you don't have to ever lay a hand on someone and you can do a race play scene. Whereas you're probably going to have to put a hand on someone if you're doing a spanking scene or a rope scene. So the sort of general, if we were to roughly divide into two columns and say um, psych, emotional, spiritual, mental stuff, physical, uh, corporal, those sorts of things. And with the physical, I tend to not necessarily, usually for most things, caveat, 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 feel that I need to have um, a heart connection with the person to enjoy. When it comes to anything that's psychological, there are different layers. You know, if someone's doing a, a mind fuck, a scene in which you're being deliberately sort of tricked or duped into a sensation of danger or a sensation of risk that doesn't really exist. You know, for example, if you're suspended and, and you're made to feel as though you're five, six, eight feet off the ground when you're really like two inches above a mattress, for example, that can be uh, those scenes are called a mind fuck scene. And that's a psychological scene. But I don't necessarily need to have a heart connection with the person I'm playing with if I'm doing something like that, because part of the core, the energy of the scene is that risk and that uncertainty. Um, the thing about play that goes deeper, that's more psychological, that where for me, I need to have a heart connection, either like a deep loving friendship or uh, a profound amount of trust or a loving relationship or a dating relationship is because I need to know going in and then coming back out that that person cares about me. And this is a trial and error thing. I can tell you because I have, I have tried, <laughs> I've tried many ways. The times when I have done scenes that have been emotionally intense. And they were with people with whom I did not share a deep heart connection and who didn't really care for me as a human being. Uh, I wound up feeling bereft, having to process a lot on my own, feeling disconnected from the world, having random bouts of, of crying and, and rage and all these other things, and not being able to reconnect with that person because they had moved on with their lives. And the things that someone who really cares about you won't leave you behind in that process. Um, I try to stack the odds if I'm doing really heavy play and only engage in those scenes with people who I really like and I really care about. And I have that uh, that deep level of trust and love for them, regardless if it's a romantic love or not, because you have a much better chance of not being hung out to dry on the other end. Well, thank you. Now, do you have any final thoughts to wrap up for our listeners today? I would stress right now for people, because it's something I'm working on, is compassion for yourself. Uh, I think that there's a lot of a lot of negativity around people who do edge play, especially around race, assuming that you must be self-hating, that you must be, you know, crushed under the heel of patriarchy and, and therefore a danger emotionally to yourself and others when the reality is oftentimes people are doing this exploration out of curiosity and from a place of strength. And here's the other thing. Let's say you are doing it from a place of self-hatred and fear and terror. This is not necessarily bad. That type of emotional aversion therapy can sometimes be an access point to finding an amazing amount of inner strength and power. Um, 
So I encourage people to consider themselves with compassion and try to let go of that judgment and that fear and that hatred and those voices that are going to be telling you that you are fucked up and that you're damaged and that you're broken because that might be true, but it still doesn't mean that you should not be able to explore this facet of your sexuality as, as, as deeply as you care to. that this podcast and this interview and all these episodes and topics that we're having encourages people and encourages our listeners to figure out what they think about things for themselves maybe you think it's hot maybe you're repulsed i melina said at the beginning that if you feel like your toes curl i don't think that i could engage in it but i do think that the interview helped me um have a better discussion about it um if it ever were to come up again Melina has a book called Playing Well with Others, um, your field guide to discovering, exploring, and navigating the kink, leather, and BDSM communities. She also has a website, melina.com, M-O-L-L-E-N-A.com. She has a presence online in articles, and um, she has other podcasts that you can explore for yourself. And thank you for listening. This episode was produced by Adam Caspel with music by Blue Dot Sessions. Find more of the music at www.sessions.blue. Special thanks to Melina Williams and Christina for being on the show today. And show notes and resources can be found at soundcloud.com slash the story of sex. This includes a bibliography of all the research that we did for you. And you can look up some gnarly SNM injuries. I cannot reiterate enough. Please talk to your doctor. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Player, wherever you find your podcasts. And don't forget to share the show with friends. Word of mouth is the best way for a community to grow. Tell us your feedback and fun sex stories or questions at thestoryofsex at gmail.com. And I may just read it on air or answer your question in another podcast. Until next time, I'm Cindy, and thanks for listening to The Story of Sex. Does that make me bad? But I'm perfectly good at it. No. <laughs> Sex and <laughs> I can't.